Good morning, good morning. Welcome to DCF. We're so happy to have you here this morning. Talking, 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 talking. <laughs> oh, I don't know about y'all, but I have had uh, quite a full week. Um, yeah, a little, little sluggish this morning, but yeah, I know, I know uh, we're going to have a, a great morning because we're here to worship God. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that, that many of us have had difficult weeks or we're, we're going through difficult week number two or three or four. Um, but yeah, I, I love how, how if, if something is, is broken uh, or God has promised something and we haven't seen that fulfilled yet, it's, it's because he's not done, you know. Uh, God doesn't, doesn't stop until it's finished, until it's good. Uh, so I'm, I'm standing on that this morning, and we're all standing on that this morning. So let's, let's stand, and let's get ready to, to worship together. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now, and we just lean, lean into you this morning as a good Father. Holy Spirit, we just want to rest in you. We want to lean in on your strength this morning. We just want to say yes to what you have this morning. We come now and we just worship you because you are worthy. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Open up and 
singing that song God just just said to me um, why are you settling I think I think we often forget that, that Christ Christ died on the cross not for us to settle not to settle for for our situations not to settle for uh, the old what, what was bought and paid for is, is what, what, he, what we need to be going after. And that's, that's the kingdom. That's, that's health. That, that's, that's not what uh, the enemy's going after. You know, we, do, we don't need to settle for, for where we're at. This, isn't, this is not meant to be uh, what, what Christ died for, the situations we're in. So this morning, as we're worshiping, as we're, as we're leaning in, don't settle. Don't settle.
I want to read something to us this morning. Um, uh, there was a, a sense this morning, just during our prayer time, of there are people here this morning who are battle ready, and then there are people here who are battle weary because you've been up against the rock face wall for a long time, for a season. And so I just want to read these scriptures to us. And it's the story of David and his mighty men. It says this, that um, they had gone out to war to conquer and they had come back to their homeland. And when they came back to their homeland, this is what they found. It says this in 1 Samuel 30, it says, Now when David and his men came home to Ziklag on the third day, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid on the south and on Ziklag and had struck Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women and all who were there, both great and small, captive. They killed no one, but carried them off and went on their way. So David and his men came to the town, and behold, it was burned, and their wives and sons and daughters were taken captive. Then David and the men with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Those people are in this room that they have wept, that they have no more strength even to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahanim and uh, Jezreelite and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and the Carmelite. David was greatly distressed, for the men spoke of stoning him because the souls of them were all bitterly grieved, each man for his sons and daughters. But David encouraged and strengthened himself in the morning. We are here this morning as a family to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and to strengthen one another. David said to Abiathar the priest and Amalekite's son, I pray you bring me the ephod. And Abathar brought him the ephod. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, and the 600 men with him, and they came to the brook Besor. There those remained who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, For 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted and faint to cross the brook. They found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and drink and food to eat. And so he gave him figs and raisins and cakes. And when he had eaten, his spirit returned to him, for he hadn't had anything for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And from where have you come? And he said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. We had made a raid on the south of the Chetherites and upon that which belongs to Judah and came south. And we burned Ziklag with fire. This was their home. This is the home that they've returned to. So this Egyptian is telling them what's happened. And David said to him, can you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will bring you down to this band. And when he had brought David down, behold, the raiders were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David smote them from twilight even to the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped. Can I tell you, there is no enemy escaping this morning. Not one. Except 400 youths who rode camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. This morning, there is a recovering of all that has been stolen. Nothing was missing, small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David recovered all. 
Also, David captured all the flocks and herds which the enemy had, and people drove those animals before him and said this, this is David's spoil. And then I want to tell you about the heart of the king of David. He said this, he said, and David came to the 200 men who were so exhausted and faint that they could not follow him and had been left at the brook Besor. They came to meet David and those with him. And when he came near to the men, he saluted them. Can I tell you, there is something in the spirit for you this morning. And if you're battle weary in this house this morning, will you raise your hand? We have had battles. The reality is the world has lived in a battle weary place for a season. And so it's not uncommon. But this morning, those of us who are battle ready and are warring, we want to come alongside you and we want to pray over you, and we want to trust the Lord to recover everything that has been stolen from you, physically, emotionally, spiritually. The Bible says that David recovered all. He was not inactive. He was not passive. He strengthened himself in the morning, and you as an individual are strengthened in the Lord, but we are going to come around you and pray for you to be strengthened also. So, Lord, we just come right now, and Lord, we, we just declare in this house, Lord, that the power of the enemy, Lord, we don't tolerate the plans and the schemes of the enemy, Lord. We bind them in Jesus' name, and Lord, we release, we release all of the goodness of heaven over brothers and sisters, over our family this morning, Lord, for healing, Lord, for rightfulness of mind, Lord, for depression to leave, Lord, for a spirit of heaviness to be gone, Lord. God, we are declaring that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And Lord, that despair is not our lot. Lord, we worship you and we honor you this morning. Holy Spirit, move among us and let there be breakthrough because you are mighty and powerful. In Jesus' great name, amen.
encourage you to stay in this atmosphere of just knowing that you're his beloved. Oh, did I? 
powerful name your name is. Father, we thank you just for for meeting us where we're at. We thank you that, that you are our source. That you are our strength, God. Holy Spirit, we just love you. Father, we just thank you for being a good father. We love you and we thank you. In your name, amen. Amen. Yeah, I don't know about y'all, but just after, after that time of ministry, it just, there was just a, a shift, it felt like. Yeah, um, Marcy came up and just, just shared with me that it just like this, this spirit just wept over all of us. And I don't know about you, but I could, I could feel it. I could feel just a, a sense of just being refreshed. Um, I, I love how uh, God is, is thinking about us before we even come and meet on Sunday mornings. He knows exactly what we need. Um, uh, we, we've been doing uh, words of knowledge during our prayer time in the morning. We've been doing it for the past couple weeks, and we've had some some pretty uh, amazing testimonies that have come from that. And that's just a test that's a testimony in and of itself of of how God uh, is being intentional <laughs> uh, for for these Sunday morning meetings, and He's using us to do that. Uh, so yeah, we we are going to be doing that again at the end of the service. We're going to be throwing up some some words of knowledge that that we have been uh, hearing for this morning. So uh, if, if any of those, those uh, you know, kind of reflect on, on you this morning, you feel like that's, that's for me, we're going to have uh, prayer at the end of the service. We're going to have ministry time come up, and we we'll, would love to pray for you. Um, welcome this morning. Welcome, everyone. If you're new, uh, we, we would love to hear from you. You can go to our, our website at, at dothancf.com. Uh, hit uh, I'm new, and there's a connection card you can fill out. Uh, give us some information. We'd love to be in contact with you. Uh, that's not going to be, you know, uh, uh, just bombardment of emails. It's just so we can, you know, uh, connect with you a little bit. Um, coming up, October 22nd, we have uh, Maladin, who is uh, uh, over from uh, Bosnia. He's from a church over there that we associate with, and we've been associated with them for, for years, decades. Yeah, 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 decades. Uh, so we are looking forward to having him come and, and speak with us. That's coming up. Uh, this morning, uh, we, are, we are a house that, that loves to give. We are a house that, that loves to give more than just our time. We give our, our, our gifts. We give our, our love towards one another. Uh, this morning, if you, you uh, would like to give, there's uh, different ways you can do that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you can, you can write a check. We have this offering box up here if you would like to write a check. Uh, set it up with your bank for, for auto, auto pay, or you can go up to our, our website on the link. There's ways to, to give through that as well. Uh, this morning, we are going to dismiss our, our kids and youth. Youth will be coming with me and Callie. Kids, you can follow Miss Karen. And we are about to transition uh, to our message this morning with Dave. Thank you. 
All right, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Wave at me if you are here. All right, most of you, that's good. <laughs> uh, I'm finishing a series <clears throat> this morning called Spirit Led, and uh, what we're talking about today, <clears throat> I entitled it uh, Spiritually Free. I was going to call it Spirit Free, but that gives the wrong kind of connotation, like you want to be free from the Spirit. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about how you are free in the Spirit. So let me just ask a couple of questions <clears throat> start with. So how many of you guys um, have been more open to the supernatural over the last several weeks? Anybody just kind of like, oh, okay. Um, part of what we've been trying to do is demystify the things of the Spirit. So how, how many of you guys would say that's happened a little bit, demystifying a little bit of the Spirit, like I'm understanding some things? Okay, three people, that's awesome. I, I had a bigger goal, but <laughs> nah, I'm just, I'm just making sure you guys are awake so when we jump in, you know, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. So let me, let me start today with, um, I want to read a scripture and then um, in just a second, we're going to watch a video. And so this is a little bit different for me. And, and I thought through how to explain and, and, uh, and process what I wanted to tell you without this video. And it was impossible to do it in the time frame. So I, I had professionals do it for me. Um, it's available. It, 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 you can, I'll talk about it a little bit after we end it. But I want to read a scripture that sets this up. So this is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18. And it's a really, really long scripture, so hang on to your hats. Here it goes. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. <laughs> right? that's, that's like so simple that you, you'll just breeze past it and like, what did that, did that actually just say I'm not under the law, right? So, so there's a couple of questions like, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? That's a big one. That's what this whole series has been talking about. And then lastly, what does it mean to, be, to not be under the law? Right? Another version says, not subject to the law. In other words, the law is not the king or the master or the sovereign anymore, but that implies that you're subject to something different because the opening of it says, if you're led by the Spirit, so something about that takes you out from underneath the law. And so that can, that's, there's been so much confusion about this over the years. And so what I want to do is I want to I introduce a video here in, a, here in just a second. And just let me kind of preface it with this. This is the Old Testament survey in about five minutes, <laughs> okay? So it literally takes you from the very beginning all the way to the end of the Old Testament, and it talks primarily about God's relationship with humanity, and in the process of this, that relationship is developed through something called the law, and so we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about that, and so I want to introduce this, so just watch the video for a second, I'll be right back. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family. 
who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. 
He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. You can uh, check out other videos by these guys. Um, at the Bible Project, I think it's BibleProject.com. <clears throat> What's fascinating about the guy who started that project is uh, he's from uh, the Northwest, not exactly like the, you know, God capital of the United States of America. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a skater before he, uh, like a, uh, uh, yeah, skater before he got saved. And uh, he went to seminary, and he's one of the most brilliant guys I've ever, ever listened to. He's fascinating. But when, you, when you're watching him, you're like, I, I feel like I should, you know, um, get a cup of coffee. <laughs> he's just like, he's, anyway, he's a really interesting guy. So check out some of their videos. They got some great stuff. Um, part of why I wanted to do that was I wanted to give you um, a foundation of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, we, sometimes we just narrow it down to that old covenant. And, uh, and if we're not careful, we forget that, that, that the whole Bible is a story. Uh, it's it's uh, 66 different books. It's various writers from people who were poor all the way to kings, priests, prophets, all these different people writing, and, and it's congruent. The entire thing is congruent, which is one of the most amazing things about the Bible. But when you, what you find in the Old Testament is you find <clears throat> that as the people of God are being led, when Moses brings them out, right, he brings them out of Egypt after they've been in slavery for 400 years, and he brings them out, God demonstrates through the plagues his power over all the gods of the Nile, over all the gods of, of the Egyptians. And so each one of those plagues are a demonstration of God against the, one, of the, one of the particular gods that they worship. And so he brings them out into the desert, brings them out to a party, right? He says, we're going to go out and we're going to have this big party, um, the, the Feast of, of Pentecost, the Bible calls it, to so have this massive big party. Um, uh, like the, the video talked about at some point, Moses goes up on the mountain. The Bible says that God gives Moses the tablets written in his own hand, not Moses. That's very important. It's very interesting that it points that out. But then he comes down, and, and again, just as the laws have been given, God's going, he's saying, I want to make you a people. I want to be with you. I want to teach you about myself. I want to teach you about one another. And as soon as, as, soon as he brings the law down, they're, they're, they're already worshiping another God. Like they've gotten so used to worshiping gods that they just kept doing it over and over again, and you find this out throughout, throughout the history. And so Moses, again, he breaks the tablets. We, we, we kind of know the story. He's, he puts in place the Levites. Uh, the Levites come about because they're a particular tribe, and when everybody's rebelling, they're just having sex, orgies, the whole thing is going on. They're worshiping gods. Literally, when, when God wanted to have a clean party and they forgot the clean part, that's kind of what was going on. So the Levites, when Moses says, who's on the Lord's side, the Levites come to him, and he sends the Levites out, and he, and he says, kill whoever, whoever doesn't stop sinning kill them with the sword. So they do. And on that day, 3,000 uh, Israelites were, were killed, were destroyed on the day that, that the law was given. So, so the law was given in death. It's an interesting concept, right? And then the priests, because they were so zealous for the Lord, um, Moses makes the, you know, you have Aaron who's the priest, but he makes the Levites, the other priests who serve Aaron and his, and his heritage. And then uh, a couple thousand years later, Jesus comes into the, the whole scene. He demonstrates God's power over all sickness, over all demons, all these things. 
and I'm shortening the whole New Testament down to one phrase. <laughs> he gets to the end, he goes to the cross, he says it's finished, everything's paid for, the fulfillment of the law and prophets have been, have been placed in him. And then um, <clears throat> we move to the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus has been resurrected. He has some conversations with the disciples, and then um, he's taken up into heaven. But before he goes, he said, um, that the Spirit of God's about to come. He's, he's about to do something amazing. So wait for the promise. Before you go out and do Christian things, right, mission and loving one another and doing all that, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and empower you to do it, right? So remember the promise of you get a new heart, but, you, the, but the Spirit of God wants to come and live inside the heart. And so... Um, on that day, Pentecost, tongues come, which is very interesting. You know, the whole thing about tongues, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, you can compare that to the, the story of Babylon in Genesis, where um, the Bible says that men wanted to build a tower to heaven. There was nothing they couldn't do because they were connected and they were in unity, which is a whole sermon in itself. And then it says, so, but they weren't godly, so God confused them with different languages. And so on that day, um, there was one language, and then all the tongues got confused, and then they couldn't cooperate. And then on the day of Pentecost, tongues come again, and people hear all about God and his kingdom and everything that's happening through this concept of, of languages that now they all, they're hearing God being praised and honored and the kingdom released in their own language. So, so the barriers now are torn down, so you see the contrast. And then it moves on, and um, you know Peter gets up and and shares, thankfully, what's going on because it was confusing even to the Israelites. He says, this is not what you think it is. These guys aren't drunk. They're filled with the Spirit. Remember all the prophecies about this, and this is now coming to pass. Joel talked about it. It's happening. And the Bible said, on that day, 3,000 people came to know Christ. So you see the contrast. The law was given in death, and grace was given in life. Fascinating contrast when you look at it. So Part of what you have to understand is in the Old Covenant, the Israelites stopped wanting to talk to God. Remember, Moses um, invites everybody up to the mountain, <laughs> and they're like, no. I mean, can you imagine the mountains full of thunder and lightning and, and power and authority, and, and they're in sin, and they're like, I ain't, I'm not going up on that mountain because I know what will happen to me if I do, right? So, so they said, Moses, you go talk to him for us and bring us back his words, right? Bring us back, tell us what to do. And so he does that, and on the day he tells them what to do, I've shared this many times, the Bible says that he presents the law with all the blessings and all the cursings, and then the Israelites in one big voice say, we will do everything that's written. You ever said that? Lord, this time, I mean, I know before I, I've, I've struggled with this, but Lord, I'm serious about it this time. You ever done that? And, it's, and all it is is just pride. You know, I'm pretty amazing, so I think I can probably handle this. I can just get it, I'll get it right. And so what happened is they, started, they stopped wanting to be led by God. Because remember, in, in the very beginning, God's, the Bible says that God walked with them in the cool of the day. And then in Jeremiah, he promises, he said, I'm going to give a new law, I mean, I mean a new covenant, and it's going to be different because I'm going to write, I'm going to read this and just think, I'm going to write the covenants, I'm going to write the laws in their heart and their minds, and, and then I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. And basically what he's saying is I'm going to return to what happened before Adam, you know, lost it all. And, and I'm going to give it back. And what it was though, is th they were walking with him in the cool of the day. They had fellowship with God. They had relationship with God. They were, they were connected and there was nothing in the way of their relationship with God. No sin, nothing in the way. So, so the story all comes full circle and God's saying, I want to restore that. But throughout the entire Old Testament, 
they would rather relate to the law than relate to God. So that's why the story is God gives the laws to tell him about himself, his character, and his nature. And rather than relate to God and say, Lord, help me with whatever is keeping me in, in a distance from you with my sin, they said, I would, I would rather have a relationship with the law. So fast forward all the way up to the Pharisees' time, and the people that Jesus had the most frustration with and the most anger and the most rebuke were not his disciples, but the religious people of the day, the Pharisees. Why? Because they loved the law and they didn't know God. Isn't that fascinating? They loved the law. They were like, you know, we're going to tithe even our spices. Jesus said, yeah, but you've left out the greatest things about, about the law. So they wanted to be led by the law. So part of that was the Torah. By the time you were 13 years old as a young man or some, even some young girls did this, um, you would memorize the entire first five books of the Bible. Memorize them. That's, go look at that. That's not a small task. However, they did not have PlayStation so, or you know, social media, so it was probably a little bit easier <laughs> for them than it would be for us. So what was the purpose of the law? So God gave purpose, and he talked about different things. And so I'm just going to condense this down to about five or six, four or five things. So one was to demonstrate his holiness and his righteousness. In other words, he wanted to show himself in his character. This is who I am. You, I made you to relate to me, but there's something in the way. But you need to understand that I'm not going to change. That means you're going to have to change, right? So God sets the standard for conduct because the character of the lawgiver is in the law. In other words, you want to know what God is like? Look at the law. It is perfect right? That's the standard. The standard is perfection. The second thing is to reveal our guilt and give knowledge of sin. You find this a lot in Romans. He goes after this, but here's what the law reveals. There's a problem with humans. There's a problem with the people. The Bible says the law was never the problem. The law is perfect and good. He said, I found fault with the people. Why? Because, you know, in, in the video, it showed the hardness of their hearts, the darkness of their hearts. They didn't want to relate to God because of the hardness of their hearts. And idolatry, I want to be my own God, is ultimately what it comes back to. But basically, we don't keep the commandments. We say we do. That's what the Pharisees did. I'm, we keep all the commandments. Do you, though? <laughs> like, it's really what Jesus is trying to say, right? So what was the law? It, was, it exists to show me my own sinfulness. The very purpose of the law is so that I will see the utter ruin of sinfulness in my life. It is a picture of death. That's the point of the law. It's to show you that you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. Another thing it does is to show us that our goodness and our good works cannot save us. So what we do is we try to keep the law, then we offer our best, off our best efforts as the sacrifice, right? So we, get, we, we don't actually keep the law, but we, we try to keep the law, and, and we offer the try to God as a sacrifice. But Lord, it's, it's, if you knew how hard it was, Lord, right? So it's very difficult for me to love my wife. I mean, have, have, you, have you been around her? Like, have you, it's so hard, Lord. And the Lord's like, yeah, totally, I, you know, I made her and everything, so I wouldn't know, but, right? So, so we're like, all these excuses about why we can't, why we can't actually do it. So we try to keep the law, and then offer our best efforts as the sacrifice, but Jesus wouldn't have it. So you, you, you fast forward to Matthew 5 and 6. Um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, we studied this in, in Bible college, and, and the professor said, this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached. And then the second greatest sermon was Paul on the, uh, on, in Athens, right, in the Areopagus. 
So we studied these sermons, they're incredible. So it starts out with these beatitudes and the blessings of this is what it looks like if you have a right relationship with God. And then he goes after um, the law. And so he says, you heard it said, but I'm saying to you. And he says, like they pointed out, you know, to, to murder someone, to kill your brother, that's, that's against the law. You should probably not do that. However, what I'm saying to you is if you hate him in your heart, if you bear resentment against him, if you won't let that go, if you won't forgive, it's the same thing. The point behind don't murder wasn't don't, you know, don't murder, but think about murder all the time. That's not the point, right? The whole point is to point out what's going on inside our heart. And so it's showing our goodness. It can't, we can never live up to the standard. So Jesus said, if your hand offends, you cut it off. He wasn't kidding, by the way, about that. People say, well, that's just him, you know, being eloquent. Nope, that was the law. They still do that in other parts of the world right now. Cut off, they cut off your hands, right? Um, if your eye offends you, plug it out. So better to go into, into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than two, one of them offends you, right? So that, that would be tough, <laughs> especially since they both see the same things. Like, which one do you pick, right? It's, a, it's not a, kind of a silly thing that it points it out. So the other thing it does is it leads us to Christ. This is Galatians, which we've been talking about Galatians. God's ultimate purpose in the law is to lead us to Christ. So you see this in Galatians 3.24. It says, therefore, the law was our tutor or our teacher or schoolmaster. There's a bunch of different phrases for it, but it, it painted the picture of the person who came in and helped raise, in Roman culture, who helped, helped raise the kids until the kids were of age to, be, to take on relationship with their father or their mother, depending on a boy or a girl. And so they would raise them up, teach them everything, and then they would give them to the father having the foundations laid and the father could launch from there into whatever he wanted to lead them into. So um, it goes on, it says, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, it was a design, not to, not to save us, it couldn't, but to teach us that we have to be justified by faith. And then verse 25 is very interesting. It says, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So after faith has come, if you put your faith in Christ, then what relationship now do you have with the law? So first of all, if you are a Gentile, which means you're not a Jew, that's how that works. Um, if you are a Gentile, you were never offered the law in the first place. So I see all these 10 commandments, you know, stuck in the yard, right? They put them up, on the, up on, in the Supreme Court and I'm, I'm fine with displaying the 10 commandments. But you have to understand the purpose behind the Ten Commandments is death, <laughs> right? That's the purpose. So put death up in your front lawn. That's awesome, right? So it's interesting that the cross is also a picture of death, but for a whole different reason, right? People put crosses, and, uh, and they wear them, and they, they make them as jewelry, and they put as stickers on their car, right? The cross is death, a really, really, really bad way to die, right? But it's, it's death unto life where the law is just straight up death. So here's the problem. God's creation is sinful and can never measure up to the standard he has set. But through pride, we think we're good enough. See how it works? So God is the solution to the sin problem. That's the death of his son as an atoning sacrifice. He's paying for your sin because you can't, right? But what he what can he do about his creation who through pride doesn't even see a need for Jesus' sacrifice. So you ever tell somebody, man, you just need Jesus. Well, it turns out everybody needs Jesus, <laughs> right? So why do we need Jesus? Because in, 
our pride, we try to do well, and we always, I, I joke about this all the time, but we always compare ourselves to somebody else who's not doing as well. Mine was, I don't know, it was probably because it was the 80s. Um, mine was Jeffrey Dahmer. I would like reason in my head, and I would be like, Lord, I know how sinful I am, but let's be honest, I ain't never ate nobody, right? <laughs> Sorry for some of you, that's a little bit too graphic. I'm, I apologize, but I'm just telling you literally what I would do is I would compare myself to the worst human on the planet. Well, if I do that, I win, right? But that's not the comparison, right? The comparison wasn't, hey, do better than a cannibal, <laughs> right? The comparison is, this is perfect, how you doing? Right? So, <clears throat> the challenge is, if we don't ever see ourselves accurately, we will never see a need for someone to come and rescue us. So if we don't, if, I, if I'm out in the middle of the ocean and a helicopter flies over and, you know, they do the PA thing and they're like, hey, would you like to be rescued? And they're like, no, nah, I'm good. What, what can the guys do? Like, can they, I mean, I guess they could jump out and, and hit me in the head and force me into the helicopter. And probably they would. <laughs> but what do you do when God says, I've given you free will, so that means you can choose. So the only way that you can love God is to be able to hate him. It's the only possible way. Otherwise, you're just a robot. You're just, you know, you're just like a VCR. I'm dating myself. You push play. Right? <laughs> or on the internet, a little play button. So you understand that the law is perfect, and, and it had a design. It had a purpose. And one of those was to show us our sinfulness, but another one was, is when we saw our sinfulness, it would cause us to cry out for rescue and cry out for salvation. That's what the law really does. So, another one is to be written in our hearts as a result of the gospel. So I'm gonna read you Hebrews 8, 7. This is part of the purpose of the law, was to, God wanted to write it on our hearts. He, he wrote it on stone, and it was external, and we couldn't follow it. But if he could write it, if he could find a way to write it in our hearts and write it on our hearts, it would, it would take, take hold. So Hebrews 8, 7 says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, in other words, if the first covenant would, would do what it needs to do ultimately, then no place would have been sought for a second. So in other words, if, if, if the law could save you, there is no need for a savior. See that? So I have conversations from time to time with pe people of Jewish descent who can be very, very religious and who know the Torah way better than I do, right? They know it. But I know grace. And so when we have the conversation, it always comes back to, yes, but can the Torah save you? And the answer is no. All it can do is teach you that you need to be saved, right? So let the law, the Bible says, let the law do its perfect work in you. Let it challenge you and show you your need for a Savior. Why? Because when you understand your need for a Savior, when you see the Savior, you will cry out, for mercy, and when mercy comes, you will cry out forever with thanksgiving and, and, and pleasure and glory and worship and honor because who is like this great king that he would rescue those who were beyond rescue? What a beautiful story, right? So in Hebrews 8, it goes on and talks about a new covenant. And in one part, he says, I'm going to put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. This in Hebrews 8 is a, 
a quote from Jeremiah in chapter 30, I think it's 33, and he's talking about there's going to come a day when all this, this covenant that's not working for you, this is the prophet looking back over all of the, the law and the prophets and the story, and he's saying it's not working. There's going to come a day God's original intent wasn't just to give you the written law on the outside, but he wants to write it on the inside, write it into your hearts. He's saying, I'm going to put my laws in your mind and write them on their hearts. And he goes on, he says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. He didn't say, I'm going to sweep it under the rug. He said, I'm going to be merciful to their unrighteousness. So it's not saying you don't have it. He's saying you do, but he's choosing to do something. And in the gospel is how he chooses to do it. He goes on, he says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's the promise of the gospels. Well, Dave, you don't understand what I've done. No, I don't. But, you know, you might not understand what I've done either. (laughs) And if you knew some of the things I've done, you'd be like, can he even be a pastor? I, don't, I think he's, right? <laughs> I always love it when we have conversations, especially my wife. My wife grew up in a dysfunctional family. I thought I had a dysfunctional family until I met my wife's dysfunctional family. And it was like dysfunction on steroids, right? And some of the stuff, I just the story she tells, we'll be in a meeting with somebody and the, and, and the wife will go, you just don't understand what I'm dealing with with my mother. <laughs> and, I, and I literally laugh outside and go, my bad, sorry. And then I just wait for it. And then Karen shares some of the things that happened. She was adopted by our our grandmother. And that's really the the challenge, some of those things that came. And I'm just, I'm blown away. I'm blown away at at how God rescued all of us, no matter the brokenness that we came from. And so the the goal is to reach maturity, but none of us start there, right? I'm so thankful. We got a bunch of little babies and little toddlers running around in our church. Um, Somebody was mentioning this morning about worship. One of the little girls was running like we were talking about endurance, and she was running laps around the, you know, interior of the building while they were, while mom and dad and everybody was, was leading worship or preparing for worship. And, and the word was um, joyful endurance. It's like, ah, happy as they could be, just running with all that energy, right? And sometimes they do that during our worship time. And sometimes they get flags and get happy and start waving flags and celebration of whatever. They're just, they're just celebrating, celebrating. They don't even know maybe Jesus yet, but they're so happy. And they whack somebody with a flag and they're like, my bad, but I'm not going to stop, right? And, and I don't know about you, but I would rather have those kids, even in their immaturity and sometimes some of the things that they do wrong, than not have them, right? And so don't get me wrong, all of us help parent. So if you see a, you see a parent struggling, um, you know, first rule is don't beat any, anybody's kids but your own. That's the old rule, right? <laughs> I shouldn't say beat. I know, I'm dating myself. But don't, don't discipline anybody's with a spanking. Don't do that. But, you know, some, some kid's about to run over somebody. I mean, it's okay to grab them and, you know, just don't be hateful when you do it, right? Kids have enough to struggle through. You know, my, the pastor being angry at them all the time is not going to be helpful. But, but that immaturity, our expectation is we look at that and go, that's going to change right? Discipline, love, encouragement, reminding of who they are in the Lord. This foolishness is going to change. The mess that they're making, I'm not just going to keep cleaning up. This is a parenting tip. Don't keep cleaning up your kid's mess. Teach them how to clean up their own mess until they stop making messes as much. (laughs) Because I'm not sure if we ever stop. So here's the challenge. Israel completely misunderstood the law. They saw it as salvation, and so they leaned into it, but what it created in them was something very interesting, and I want to cover that right now. This is uh, the story of what we call the prodigal son. So it's a little bit lengthy, but it's worth telling the story. So it starts out, um, 
Jesus told them a story, a man had two sons. So let me, the prerequisite to this is Jesus had just, to, just told two stories about lost and found. The lost coin and, and how happy the woman was. She cleaned the entire house till she found the coin. She was so happy and the lost sheep. And, and once the sheep was found, it was rejoicing. So lost and found. Jesus saying, I'm, I came to seek, my purpose came to seek and save the lost. Those who are lost and broken in, in sin, those are the ones I came for. Right? So then he tells a story. And listen, the story is very interesting because we make this sometimes about the father. Sometimes we make it about the one son, the younger son. But Jesus starts the story with, a man had two sons. So this is really helpful to understand the law and what happens next. So let me just read it. Um, the younger, younger son told his father, so this is the New Living Translation. It's a paraphrase, so just bear with me. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. That's a helpful phrase, wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, I love that phrase, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. All true. Please take me on as a hired servant. That's his perspective, not the father's. Right? This is what sin does to you. It gives you a wrong perspective of your father. So, <clears throat> verse 20, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Very true. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. I don't know if you know, but God is a partying God. Right? Just clean party. We'll get to that. So, <clears throat> meanwhile, back at the ranch, right? The older son, was, that's not in the Bible. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, it's very important, that phrase. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. Very important about the older son. Um, when he returned home, he heard music and dancing. Dear God, not dancing. <laughs> And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. Another phrase about older brothers. He was angry and wouldn't go in to his father. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. Really? Like, let me read that again, because we say this sometimes, and it's helpful. All these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. Do you think that's true? He probably did his best, but it wasn't true. He goes on, 
And all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. You withheld all those good things from me. Father, you're horrible. Verse 30, yet when this son of yours, so see the contrast, two brothers. One brother doesn't even care about his older brother. He went out, parties, parties his brains out, could care less until circumstances get him thinking, you know, maybe it's better back home. His older brother's slaving, working hard for the father. You know, he can never party because obviously the father is withholding all the fatted calves. He can never have any with his friends. He has to just, you know, eat rocks or whatever it is he does, right? And then, and then now he's angry. He's, he's always angry. He's angry at the father. This is what religious people are. They're angry all the time. Why? Because somehow God has withheld something for them. And look at all I do for you, and you've withheld. But they're never honest about whether they've really done everything or not. They do their best and then offer that as a sacrifice with anger and, and resentment toward the Father. So, all that time you never gave me even one young goat, yet when his, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money, look at how he looks at his brother. This son of yours, not my brother. When the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Three lost and found stories, Jesus tells. He's trying to illustrate something to Israel. You think you're found, but you're lost. Right? So he talks about the obvious ones, the prostitutes and the guys. And we see this, you know, we call them hippies, basically. That's what we had, you know, in the 60s, they were hippies. They're like, free love, free everything, you know, living, whatever, live in a tent. I don't care. I just want to live my life and be free. And then you got, you know, the man <laughs> who's the accountant and a lawyer and, 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 you know, taking responsibility, went to school and he's doing everything right and he's, and he's, and he's responsible for his family. And you got this contrast between the free-loving spirit, and, and the, you know, we get things done, and we take care of business, and you better shine up, and all this, right? You get this picture even in society. It tends to be two kinds of people, and this is what Jesus is talking about. To the Jews, he's saying, you guys have been with me always. Everything I've had has always been yours, and you never once, never once came to me to know me. All you ever wanted to do was work hard for me so you could tell me how hard you're working for me, Right? And then be angry and resentful because I'm not giving you everything that you want. So they, they didn't want a father. They wanted a, they wanted a, a mantelpiece. They wanted something to say, this is, this is God, but I'm living my own life anyway, right? So they're just doing it a different way. So here's something really interesting about this word prodigal. It's a really, really old word. But it does not mean wayward, which is what we think it means because it's always describing the prodigal son. But the prodigal was also a father. The father was also a prodigal, because here's what that word means. It doesn't mean wayward. It means recklessly spendthrifting. In other words, spending until you have nothing left. So the first, the son spends his inheritance that he's been given, his part of the inheritance, until there's absolutely nothing left and he has nothing. The father, in all of his inheritance, this is why it's so interesting that the father, and, and when it comes to this repentant son, when he came back, was literally reckless. What does that mean? He, he refused to reckon. That's where the word reckless comes from. He refused to reckon or count his sin against him or demand repayment from what he gave him. So the father is just as much a prodigal as the son, just in a different way. 
The son is selfish and spends everything he has until he has nothing. The father is selfless and he spends everything on his son and continues to spend everything on his son because his son has come home, he's restored to him, and everything he had, all the inheritance he had, was still available to his son. But here's the challenge, the end result of the law. Because remember, who's Jesus talking to? Jesus is, it starts out, he's ministering to prostitutes and, you know, and the, and the, and the younger son. That's who he's ministering to. And then the older brother sees it, gets angry. And so Jesus tells them the story to show them the contrast. So he's telling the, the story. The, the, the younger brother people hear it. And he's referencing them, and they're like hanging their head because they know, yep, absolutely, I've done it all wrong. I've blown it. I'm, you know, he's literally spent his money on the prostitutes. Some of them are prostitutes that the son spent the money on, right? And he comes back, and he says, but I want to tell this to the Jewish people. The people who are under the law, hating the people who can't fulfill the law, even though truthfully, neither can they, they're just good rule followers. So there's two kinds of people. Which one are you? Are you a good rule follower? And you can always tell because you start doing something and if you, you know, especially you play in a game, this is how you tell with your kids. And, and you stray outside of the, you know, the guardrails, they will let you know. And you need to come back into the guardrails and get this right. <laughs> so th- those people are going to make incredible accountants and we need accountants. Nothing wrong with that, right? And then you got the free spirits who just like the game is just a suggestion. My wife is the free, sp- I don't know if you saw my wife this morning. She's working in kids church and she got on shiny, you know, shoes and and she's got on a tiara well it's a crown of you know flowers so she helped um the woodhams do something up in enterprise that made these things and and i said to her she came in and she showed me that and i said she said i'm wearing this tomorrow and i said are you going to explain to anybody what and she said nope <laughs> and so it wasn't enough that she just wore the tiara <laughs> the princess thing she also had shiny shoes on and i'm like like, can you turn the volume on my wife up any more than, and the answer is no. You know why? Because it's who she is, and I love her for it. I love her. She's amazing in so many ways. But this, this is the difference between people. People are free-loving. But here's what free-loving people do, is if they can't follow the rules, they end up in despair. That's why addicts are addicts. It's why they're so broken. It's why people are in the gutter. But you ever notice that some people who are up in the high rise and have won the, you know, the, the lottery, so to speak, when it comes to success, and they're living their best life, and they got everything that they think they want, and they're on their third marriage, they don't know their kids, um, they're unhealthy, and the list goes on and on and on, and they're broken. Why? Because they're just in a different kind of gutter. Why? Because the people who aren't good at following rules, they... They suffer. They're in despair. The people who are good at following rules are arrogant. But secretly, they suffer. See how it works? So the end result is just that. Both are lost. That's what Jesus is trying to tell this story. So he he comes back to Colossians. This is Paul. He says, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. This is Colossians 2.21. Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But listen to this last phrase. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Zero help. 
So the law cannot justify you. This is Galatians 2.16. Know that a person's not justified by the works of the law. It doesn't get any clearer than that. But by faith in Jesus Christ. The law can't impart life. Galatians 3.21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But it didn't. So if the law can't do it, the law can't justify, if the law can't impart life, if all the law does is show me my shortcomings, how can we do this? How can we have relationship with God? So how is the law fulfilled in us? If we're believers, how do we live out the law? Because Jesus said the law's not passing away. The law's perfect. But you are not subject to the law. If you're led by the Spirit, Galatians said, you are not under the law. So what does that look like? This is Matthew 22, 35. This is the commandment that summarizes all the commandments. Most of you guys know where we're going with this. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, or the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen to this verse. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God with everything that's in you. And love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the problem. You ready for it? It's still the law. Still the law. He just summarized the whole law. If you can love God with everything that you are, perfectly, you can love your neighbor like you love yourself, which means you understand and see yourself clearly, right? You love your neighbor that way. You're good. Here's the problem. Still can't do it. So Galatians 5.18. If you're led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. So this verse literally means, but if you are willingly led. One of the interesting things we've been going after in our community group about manifestation gifts is, the Bible doesn't just say desire spiritual gifts. right? That desire is a really strong word. And, it, and I would have been fine if it just said that. But you know what it says? It says eagerly desire. It, it literally says desire is not strong enough of a word I'm going to add something to it so you understand the significance of how you need to go after these gifts if you're going to see fruit from them. Does that make sense? So the same thing is true about the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit, the, the understanding in that Scripture is willingly led or eagerly desiring to be led by the Spirit. Not your good intentions, not you want to be, oh, I think it'd be a good idea. I agree with the premise that we should be. No, no, no. You eagerly desire a relationship with the Holy Spirit and having him lead you in your life. That's what you're after. There's a quote by a Catholic writer. I don't quote very many Catholic writers, but this one I do. His name's Christopher West, and this is what he said about that verse. He said, the Apostle Paul writes that those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. They're free from the law, not free to break it. That's license. They're free to fulfill it because they don't desire to break it. Christ didn't come into this world to shove laws down our throats. He came into the world to align the desires of our hearts with the divine design so we would no longer need the laws. Let me read that last verse or last part. Align the desires of our hearts with the divine design so we would no longer need the laws. There's a really fascinating scripture that says that God will give you the desires of your heart. But God's tricky. He changes your heart. 
to desire the things that are good for you and helpful and beneficial to your relationship with him and your relationship to one another. And then he gives you those. You ever notice that you will give your kid anything unless they ask for a bowl of sugar? Because if you give them a bowl of sugar, you are a horrible parent. Just want to be clear, okay? <laughs> but my, my, my parents gave me a bowl of sugar. Doesn't matter how bad your parents were, you know better than to give your kids a bowl of sugar. Do you not? Right? So this whole concept, this, this concept is that God wants us to have the desires of our heart, but he wants to challenge the desires of our heart. And that therein lies the problem. Before you know Christ, your desire is for you. You are 100% selfish. Do you sometimes do selfless acts? Yes, but there's a selfish motive even behind your selfless acts. And that's what Jesus over and over and over again pointed out in the Pharisees, right? He said, you, you love to pray in front of people, right? He says, you pray these long prayers, you do this thing, and he goes, you have your reward. Not from your heavenly father, because you want that, you pray in the closet. You pray in private if you want a reward from your heavenly father. You know what they were getting? The reward? Likes. Like, 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 like. It's just the nature of it, right? So Galatians 5.22, and I'm wrapping this up. This is the scripture about the fruit of the Spirit. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and it lists all these fruits of the Spirit. The only problem with that is there's no such thing as fruits, plural, of the Spirit. Did you know that? <laughs> it's fruit. The fruit of the Spirit looks like this, right? So he goes after that. Why? The fruit in this, in this particular passage, and coming, it draws from the Hebrew this word called karpos, and it literally means the fruit of the womb or offspring. Fruit of the loins, offspring, posterity. The whole idea behind it is that the fruit of the Spirit is, is released by intimacy with the Spirit. It's not fruit like you grow on a tree. It's a different kind of fruit. It's fruit from your womb. It's your, it's your children. And, and <laughs> we used to mess with the teenagers all the time when we did youth ministry. We talk about, you know, sexuality because we, you have to if you want to get some biblical stuff into them. All they're hearing at school is, you know, the, the other stuff. And so we'd start talking about sex, and they're like, oh, just, oh, no, here we go. I said, I wanted, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but your mom and dad have had sex. And they're like, oh, my God. You know, I'm like, and you are the proof. <laughs> so at least once, right? <laughs> and they're like, that's so awful. But we, started, we would use that to talk to them about sexuality is a physical thing that speaks to a greater emotional and spiritual thing called intimacy. And intimacy, having sex is never supposed to create children, which is why we have single moms who struggle because deadbeat dads and, you know, vice versa sometimes, but not very often because a mother's love is so powerful. But you see this constantly. So you have all these broken families, and it's what we live with. It's the reality of it. Why? Because people had sex but didn't have intimacy. Because there's a vulnerability. There's a selflessness that comes from intimacy. And here's the whole picture the whole idea behind this is in your intimacy and in your relationship with the Holy Spirit is the place where fruit flows out of your life. It, the fruitfulness of being intimate with the Holy Spirit is you living out the law without the law. 
So Romans 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Hear that? Whoever loves the fruit of the Spirit. What's the first one he starts with? Love, right? Whoever loves your neighbor, whoever loves others, has fulfilled the law. He goes on, it finishes with, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to know what living out the law looks like? Andy Stanley preached a great sermon series one time called What, Will love, what Would Love Do? If you're curious about making a decision about how it relates to your spouse or your kids or the church or anybody else, what, just ask the question, what would love do, right? Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Hear this? He's challenging them because they'd gone back under the law. You're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So it's not a license to sin, it's freedom from it. So how do you do that? Serve one another humbly in love. It's like, are those connected? They're connected 100%. goes on, it says, the entire law, all the law and prophets, Jesus said, hangs on this. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the challenge. That's still a commandment. See how it works? Like no matter how you, you, you summarize it, Jesus put it to you know, love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's really three, right? All the law and prophets hangs on that. that those are, that's the greatest commandment, but it's three, it's four, whatever. And then it, Paul reduces it down. If you fulfill, if you love, you fulfill the law. It's the one commandment. It's the love, 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 love God, love. It's just love. So how do you do that? And the answer is, we all know this. You cannot do that with a selfish heart. Your heart has to be transformed. You have to get a new heart and a new nature. And that's what the video is talking about. That's what this message is about. When Jesus comes into our life and we lay our lives down, we say, the, the, the work of the law has done its perfect work in me. I realize how sinful I am. I see the abject poverty that I live in because of my sin. I see the brokenness. Maybe I get it sooner before it all happens or maybe later in life. And, I, and I just, I've left a wake of disaster behind me because of my selfishness. But at some point, I recognize a need for a Savior, and then I find out there is a Savior who literally lived a perfect life and then went to the cross and died a horrible, horrible, grisly death on my behalf. And then he offers me now, for my brokenness, he offers me wholeness. For my sinfulness, he offers me righteousness, and it becomes a gift of righteousness, not my own self-righteousness, in trying harder and presenting that as a sacrifice to the Lord. So our relationship with God is not based on our ability to keep the law, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let me close with this. What does the Christian life look like? What's a normal Christian life? It's a manifestation of the Spirit in your life. The gifts, this morning um, we shared the words of knowledge. We're going to put those up in just a second. We shared last week's. And, and there's just so many testimonies behind already what those look like. In my whole life of testimonies of sharing words of knowledge and having words of knowledge shared with me and prophecy and all these ministries and the gifts of healing and gift of faith and all these different things happening, what are they? They're manifestations of the Spirit to do what? To love one another with power. That's the beautiful thing. Paul, I mean, Jesus tells the disciples, before you go out and do this Christian life, be endued with power. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Be submerged. Be com- 
completely and 100% submitted to the Spirit. You've been given a new nature and a new heart, and now the way this works is in relationship with me. You hear my voice and you do what I'm saying, and the Spirit of God is moving. What would it look like this morning if God began to do that in every single one of us? And I just said, Lord, I'm fully and wholly and completely submitted to what you want to do. So coming on a Sunday morning, you start thinking about Sunday morning less and less about what you get and more and more about what you can give. And here's what's so fascinating about God and how he's so amazing. In you giving to others, guess what you get? Everything that you're giving has to come through you first. Every grace gift you have flows into you as a grace first, then it flows out to people. Every manifestation gift that you operate in is an indication of who God is to you, his nature and his character, that he's trustworthy, that he does want to heal, that he does want to deliver, that he does want to set free. That's his passion. So how do you do it? 2 Corinthians 7. Therefore, since we have these promises, these incredible promises about God and his desire for our life, let us purify ourselves. This is what we call an imperative. But that, that means it's something you have to do. It's imperative that you do it, but it comes from the indicative that because God has done this, you can do that. So the indicative is we have these promises. This is the promise. This is how you base the thing on. And he says, purify yourselves. That's the imperative you have to do. From everything that contaminates body and spirit, you purify yourself. How do you do that? By being led by the spirit. And he goes on, body and spirit perfecting this imperative holiness out of a reverence for God. How do you live out holiness? Why would you sin against God if you love him so deeply? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. So the more that that love of God flows inside of you, the more space you give it, the more relationship, the more time you give to connect to the Father on a regular basis, the Bible literally says pray without ceasing. So sometimes I do that while I'm driving. I just raise my hands, close my eyes. It's not what he means, obviously. So what it means, it means being in constant contact with your heavenly father. What secrets would he tell you? What amazing things would he communicate? How would he speak to you? How would you speak to him? J.I. Packer reminds us that holiness is the fruit of the spirit displayed as the Christian walks by the spirit. Last verse. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Again, this is a a paraphrase. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then, if you let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. What's he saying? If you're led by the Spirit, if you have a relationship with the Spirit, if there's intimacy with the Spirit, the fruit of the womb will be love and peace and all of these, what we call the fruits of the Spirit. They will be an indication of who God is and what he's doing. So how do you do it? And I'm, I, I, I want you to understand this. There's, the Bible says in the New Covenant, not to strive, right? That's part of the law. Trying so hard. No, try harder, brother. Try, try harder, try harder, try harder, right? And we do that. And we're like, I'm trying to get God to love me. Why? He already loves you. But if he knew what I did, he knows what you did. He knows what you're going to do. And he still loves you anyway. So what happens is when you understand that, this is the way you're led by the Spirit. And it's one of the most important things you'll ever do. You ready for this? 
relax. Don't do it. <laughs> Sorry, that was an 80s quote from a song. Relax. Relax. Just sit and wait on the Lord and say, Lord, I'm here. You said you're going to talk to me. You said you're going to speak to me. You said you're going to change me. You said you're going to transform me. Lord, I, I'm not loving my kids the way I ought to. I'm not loving my spouse the way. Lord, I'm not sure how to handle politics as we come close to electing another president. Dear God, help us, help us, help us, help us. And God keeps saying, well, why are you looking out there? Why are, you, why are you doing that? I don't know if you know this, but most technology has an off button. Most of it, right? So fast your telephone, which is a computer and the internet. Fast TV. Set, set yourself aside. Because fasting doesn't change God. What does it do? It helps you focus and, and, and create space so that you can hear him. And you can be in relationship with him. But I'll bet you as a Christian, you don't have a pattern of doing that. You don't have a discipline of doing that. But if you're going to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, if you're going to do this Christian life right, if you're going to see the manifestations of God's Spirit in signs and wonders and miracles, if you're going to see the fruit of the Spirit in your life and everybody's life around you, the only way you're going to do it is to be led by the Spirit. And the only way you're led by the Spirit is to give Him time to lead you. Amen? Would you stand with me? If you are in need this morning, there's good news. Um, we're going to put a screen up here real quickly. This is the words of knowledge we had for uh, this morning. And the reason we do these is we've, we've gone ahead from the Lord, and these are manifestations of the Spirit. This is how God wants to love on you. So he talks to us at an earlier time. We put these on the screen and say, hey, um, there's probably somebody dealing with this. So we've got a new couple. I hope you don't mind me sharing this story, but I won't get too deep. But a new couple came last week, Christian and David back there. Wave at them. Hey, guys. Um, we had lunch with them last week, and they said, you know, there was a there was one on there last week that said it was about the tide going out and picking up treasures when the tide was out. And she said, I had that dream six months ago. So let me paint this picture. Last Sunday morning, we're praying. Somebody has a picture in their head of that thing. We write it down. We go to work, all this stuff. We put it up on the screen through the man, you know, all these different gifts that make this happen. And then she sees it. And it just so happens to be the first time she's ever visited our church. And the dream was six months ago. I mean, the timing's pretty good, don't you think? So these are for you. So we want to challenge you because one of the things we've prayed and we said, God, we're not seeing people receive ministry enough. And so we, want, we always give space for it at the end of the meeting. But you guys are so busy and so hangry that you want to run out before you get ministry prayer time. So I want to challenge you. If any of these resonate with you, our team's going to be up here, and they're, they do this all the time, and they're leaning into this. We want to minister to you. We want to give to you love. We want to pour out the manifestation of God's love through his spirit into your life, and this is the way we do it. So if this resonates with you at all, we would love to pray for you this morning and see God transform your lives. Amen? Love you guys. Our ministry team will be up here. So come up for prayer if you need it. Otherwise, have a wonderful, wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.